Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Hey man, good morning, how are you? All right, if you have a Bible, open it to Philippians chapter 2. We're taking a break from our series through the letter, James's letter, and we'll pick that back up in, in January of 2020. That just sounds so far in the future, but it's actually just a couple weeks. 2020, can you believe it? But for the, this Sunday, as we prepare to celebrate and think about the birth of our Savior and remember all of the beauty and all of the, the truth that comes in the incarnation, I want us to think about one of the classic texts in the New Testament about Jesus' incarnation about God becoming man. And as you're finding Philippians chapter 2, we're going to read verses 5 through 11. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to pray. And then I have three truths that I want us to think about as we read this text. And then, praise God, we have the privilege to see two members of Crosspoint be baptized this morning. And so we're going to celebrate the gospel that we believe so, so dearly through, see it celebrated and proclaimed through water baptism. And then we'll... Uh, We'll, we'll, we'll brave the rain as we go out and get our last-minute shopping done on this beautiful Sunday in December. Listen, we are privileged people, aren't we? Um, this past week, I got a, a message from a pastor in India that we support, and if you're not familiar with what's going on in certain portions of India... There is a government that's in charge of India right now that is very hostile to the gospel and is trying to institute a kind of a Hindu nationalism in the country. And this particular brother that we have supported over the past few years, his name is Gyan, uh, is, is uh, having a very difficult time with his church in the portion of India that he lives. And so as we gather so comfortably and really in many ways in regards to really important things like our safety, we, we, we gather carefree as we open up this text, as we worship this morning. I'm, in particular, I'm thinking of Gyan and his wife and their church there in Varanasi, India. So let me pray and ask the Lord to help us as we, as we meditate on his word. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the beauty of the gospel. Thank you for the circumstance that you have caused us to live in in this particular time. We know it's by your grace. We know it's according to your sovereign plan. We know what Paul says in Acts 17 about how you've called us all to live in certain places and certain times so that we might long for you. I pray that we would not become sinfully comfortable and self-sufficient and self-absorbed as we enjoy these blessings that you've given us. I pray that what we do as a local church would serve to advance the gospel beyond just ourselves. We think of our brother Gian and his wife Kavita and their church there in Varanasi. We pray for grace to them. We pray for believers in other parts of the world that are suffering persecution in this, this Christmas season. Lord, we pray for Believers in this church, Christians in this church who are deployed in harm's way, we pray for grace to them. Lord, help us now as we think about the beauty of the incarnation, Lord. Cause us to, to rise with joy and hope and steadfastness. And 
Lord, may we fasten ourselves to the truth of the gospel and the glory of the incarnation, and may we walk out of this place worshiping you. May, may believers in this room be transformed more into the image of Christ. And Father, if there's any in this room that don't know you, may you, by your grace, give them a new heart so that they can believe. Lord, be glorified, I pray. Encourage us. Help me as I speak to these people. And I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let me read verses 5 through 11. Before I do, let me give you the context of, since we're just kind of parachuting down into Philippians chapter 2, um, one of the first books that we preached through as a church at Crosspoint when we started 15 years ago was Philippians. And um, I'm thinking about, uh, it towards the end of my ministry, doing a series called Retractions. Uh, Martin Luther famously, at the end of his life, uh, looked at all of the crazy things that he said in his younger years and said, ah, let me go back and correct that. And so um, we may do Philippians sometime in the, in the coming years, and we're just going to title it Philippians Retractions, where I messed it up before, now hopefully I'll get it right. But we're just parachuting down into Philippians chapter 2, and, and the context of Philippians 2 is Paul's in prison. He's writing this from prison. He's in a Roman prison cell, and he's writing to the church at Philippi, wanting to encourage them, even though he's in this dire situation where he's in prison. And he's not. His attitude in chapter 1 is really quite remarkable. He isn't saying, hey guys, organize like SEAL Team 6 to come break me out of this thing. But his attitude is one of, man, this is wonderful. Praise God, I get to witness to the Roman guards that are holding me captive here in this prison. And in chapter 2, he's wanting to exhort the church to live in unity. He's, he's going to talk to them a little bit about some of the problems that they have and to, to, to help them focus themselves away from their current circumstance. He, he gives us this beautiful meditation about the person and work of Christ. And that, that is the answer that's the antidote for every problem in this world, that God's people would look away from themselves and look to him. We read in Hebrews chapter 12 where the writer of Hebrews says that we should lay aside those things that so easily that stick to us, the sin that entangles us, and look unto Jesus who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Consider Jesus, verse 3 of Hebrews 12 says, that we might see him and remember him and be stirred in our affections for him. And so that's the point, I think, that's the context of Philippians chapter 2. So let me read verses 5 through 11, then I want us to look at three truths about Jesus and his incarnation. Paul writes this, verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. All right, there's three truths that I want us to see about Jesus in this text. The first truth is this, and really these, these truths are coming almost verbatim from the text itself. Truth number one about 
the incarnation and about Jesus is that Jesus was born in the likeness of men. Look again at at verses 5 through 7. Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, think about this. Imitate Christ in this way. And what about Christ should we we think about? It says in verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, in other words, he was God, did not count equality equality with God a thing to be grasped. So there was nothing for Jesus to attain to be equal with God. This is an expression of Paul to speak to the divinity of Jesus. Jesus is God the Son in the flesh. And what does God the Son do? Verse 7, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. So truth number one is that Jesus was born in the likeness of men. There's a couple things that we need to say in addition to this to kind of round out this truth. The first thing I want to say is that it's important for us to understand what the Bible says about Jesus' birth. Jesus was born of a virgin. We know that. I think if we've, we've hung around church for a while, if we've heard the Bible taught faithfully, we know that one of the foundational truths of the Bible and of the Christian faith is this miracle of the virgin birth. But why is this so important? Why would God do it this way? Well, there's much we could say about this, but let me just give you two two reasons why the virgin birth is, is so important to the message of the gospel, so important to the Bible itself, and why God would do it this way. The first is that it establishes, it sets in, in stone the divine origin of our salvation. Jesus is not just another man. He, he was born God. Now, this is a great mystery. And I love what Robert said as he was praying for us when he read from Matthew chapter 1 about Joseph's posture. Can you imagine being spoken to by an angel like Joseph was and all the things that are going through your mind? I mean, the Bible's very economic in its language. It doesn't tell us all that might be going on in those that are hearing God speak in this way. But Joseph gets up, he obeys God, and he simply trusts him. And here... We, we, we see that this virgin, this young, this young woman, Mary, she's never laid with a man and she is now pregnant. And why is this so important? Because it establishes that salvation will not come through man. A miracle has to take place. Some, God must intervene. Jonah, when he is in the mouth of the whale in the Old Testament in Jonah, confesses that salvation is of the Lord. It's something that God must do. The story of the gospel is not that man improves himself or evolves or eventually gets it right. The story of salvation is that God interrupts. He comes in. He breaks into this fallen world in the miraculous form of a virgin conceiving a child through the Holy Spirit. So it establishes the divine the divine origin of our salvation. Secondly, it makes, it makes possible, and this is so important, it makes possible this mystery, this beautiful mystery of the uniting of God's divinity, God the Son, His godness with humanity. 
So Jesus is God, fully God, truly God, and yet fully man. This is a great mystery, but we see it in the Bible. This is absolutely essential to the Christian faith. Jesus is God fully and truly. And Jesus is God, man fully and truly. Now I think it's easy for us to, to see more clearly the, that Jesus is God. We see even in this text, in verse 6, that he was in the form of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's a, that's a clear statement of Jesus' divinity. But we also read about it in Colossians 1. It says that he is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says that he, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. In John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, there's this beautiful statement about Jesus who is identified here at the beginning in the first few verses as the word, the personification of God in the flesh. It says in verse 1 of John 1, In the beginning was the word, speaking of Jesus, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus is God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So there's no doubt, clearly, biblically, about Jesus' full divinity. He is God, eternally God the Son. But Jesus' virgin birth makes the joining of Jesus' divinity with true humanity. Jesus was and is truly and fully man. And this is a mystery that we can't quite comprehend, but we can see and believe, and it's essential to the understanding of the gospel. Jesus is, is born, we, we read here in verse 7, he's born in the likeness of men. Romans chapter 8 verse 3 says that for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. And then Hebrews chapter 4 verses 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest, this is speaking of Jesus, who has passed through the heavens. In other words, he's condescended to us. He's come down from heaven to earth, who's passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That means that Jesus has become like us so that he might reconcile us to God. Let us then, verse 16, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. All of these verses speak to the humanity of Jesus. But his humanity is unlike ours. We inherit a fallen nature. Because we are all in our first parents, Adam and Eve. We, we are fallen. We're sinful by nature. But Jesus is the new Adam. He's the, he's the perfect man. He, he is a true man, but he's a sinless man. His nature is not corrupt like ours. Now, why did Jesus have to become fully man before we move on to the second truth? Why is this so important that we see this? There's some mysterious things here. I, clearly, we understand this. Why did Jesus have to be born of a virgin? And why did Jesus have to become fully man in order to save us? 
Well, I think the Bible answers. It points us in the direction of an answer in Hebrews chapter 2. Let me read to you in Hebrews chapter 2 this beautiful text, verses 10 through, through 18. And one of these days soon, we're going to preach through Hebrews. It is a rich, rich, rich letter. Listen to Hebrews 10, Hebrews 2, I'm sorry, starting in verse 10. This is speaking of Jesus. It says, and this is, this, is, this is the answer that the Bible gives us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as to why Jesus needed to become a man. This is what the Bible answer, how, this, how the Bible answers that question. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So I think that's talking about the father making the son through whom he's bringing people to himself through reconciling them through the son's work that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. I don't think that that means that Jesus wasn't always perfect. It means that in his life, in his humanity, in his incarnation, he actually accomplished in time what before time God had planned in the reconciliation of a people through his son Jesus. So God, here's, there's so much going on in verse 10. God's created a world that he knew would fall and he sends Jesus. In fact, the Bible says about Jesus that he's the lamb slain before the foundations of the world and he sends Jesus to actually accomplish, to, to, to fulfill, to bring into actual being the redemption of his people. Verse 11, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, meaning we're all humans. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Skip down to verse 14. Since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Man, that's, that, yeah, verse 14. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, meaning us, people. Therefore, verse 17, here's how the Bible answers that question. Here's how the Bible, here's the logic of the Bible in verse 17 as to the answer of why did Jesus have to become a man in order to save men. Therefore, he, meaning Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Let me back up there. Let's, let's under, make sure we understand what the word propitiation means. And I know that if you're part of Crosspoint and you attend here regularly, you've heard this word before. It seems to come up all the time because I think it's the center of the gospel. It means that Jesus, listen to me now, lived a perfect life laid down his life on the cross to bear, to substitute, to extinguish God's wrath for our sins. He takes, he's the atonement for our sin, and he removes God's wrath and turns it into favor. That's what propitiation means. Jesus did that for us. But look at verse 17. 
Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers. Jesus had to become like us in every respect. Why? So that he would be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. He had to be like this. He had to be a man. All right, let's stop and think about this before we move on. This is an important truth that you need to understand about God. Nothing is acting or binding or forcing God to do anything other than himself. There's no, there's no force in the world that is backing God into a corner and making him conceive of a plan in a certain way. What's going on in verse 17 is God, in his own decree, in his own will, has orchestrated a universe and a way and a plan of salvation that he has bound himself to, and nothing is forcing God into anything except God's sovereign pleasure. And so you may say, well, that's circular logic there. The reason why Jesus had to become a man is because God said so? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Because I think that's what verse 17 is saying. And I think that is the heart of humility. That is the heart of wisdom to see something in the scriptures. And even if we don't quite understand it, to see that God has said this is the way it must be and therefore it is. Jesus had to be made like us in every respect. And why? What's God's motivation? Look at the love and the compassion of God in verse 17. Why would God do this so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to atone for our sins, to make propitiation for our sins because he himself has suffered when tempted? He's able to help us. He's able to help those when we are tempted. So God is so gracious that he has bound himself to this plan where he will receive glory, we will receive help, and he will be a merciful, faithful high priest. The incarnation is more than just a miracle. It's the grace of God. It's God descending into our mess. The world is broken. Your lives are broken. My life is broken. We're a chaotic mixture of junk. And the good news of the incarnation is that God doesn't fold his arms in disgust. He descends into the mess for the sake of mercy and his glory. That's Jesus. And to accomplish that, Jesus, God the Son, the creator of the universe, is born in the likeness of sinful flesh like us, yet without sin. That's an incomprehensively beautiful truth that God became man. He descends into our mess and he comes to us as Emmanuel, God with us. But why did he come? Did he come just to be a, an example of humility? No, he came to die. Which leads us to the second truth, that Jesus was obedient to the point of death on the cross. Jesus was obedient to the point of death on the cross. Look at verse 8. This Jesus who came in the likeness of the form of man, it says, in being in human form, verse 8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Think about the humility. Just think about when you see an example of humility here, kind of horizontally in a human sense, and then think about how small that is in comparison to the creator of the universe, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, 
John 1, through him nothing was, that was made that was made but by Jesus. And he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So Jesus, this God-man in the flesh, humbled himself, and he was born not just to live, but to die. Not just to live as an example, but to die as a sacrifice. And Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So why did Jesus have to die? He had to die to fulfill the law. To fulfill the law that was against us. God is holy, and His law sheds light on His holiness and our sinfulness. And it has separated us. We have been lawbreakers from the beginning. Adam and Eve broke God's law. God said, do this, don't do this. And the one command He gave humanity to not eat of one particular tree, we broke God's law. And the history of the Old Testament is God's people breaking God's law. And we even see in our own hearts, the history of our lives is in one way or the other, us breaking God's law. And what does the lawbreaker deserve? Well, the law calls for the lawbreakers to be punished, to be killed. And Jesus fulfills, satisfies, takes the punishment for our lawbreaking on the cross. That's why he had to be born. Listen to how Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 2. Let me read verses 13 through 15. These, these are beautiful verses. Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, meaning you're, you're sinful, your sin has separated you from God, there's nothing you can do to save yourself. The uncircumcision of your flesh means that you're disobedient. You haven't cut away your sin. You have, you're still relying on yourself. So he's saying you're dead in your sins. God made alive together with him. That's how you became a Christian. You didn't figure it out. God made you alive together with him. Having forgiven us all our trespasses. How did he forgive us? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. How did those demands, how did that accusation of guilt that we've all participated in get removed? Well, it tells us this, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And so Jesus, who is the innocent one, the perfect one, tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin, for every wrong, every sin, every act of rebellion, both exterior and interior, that all of his people have ever done and will do, Jesus takes the punishment for that sin on the cross, and the guilty verdict is nailed to the cross, and Jesus extinguishes it. He serves the sentence. He dies the death that the law calls for on the cross. And it says that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What is this picture for me? I just think of a courtroom scene. I think of, and picture this with me. I think about what's going on here in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, as a kind of scene in the courtroom of heaven. And we, we are the guilty. We're standing before the judge, God himself. 
and our prosecuting attorney has got himself to it. It's his law. His law, look, our biggest problem is not less than optimal life. It's not, our biggest problem is God's law, which is against us. So we have the prosecuting attorney, which is God and his law, but our defense attorney is God the Son. And so Jesus takes the accusations which are true. He takes the, the penalty for our sin. Jesus stands in our place and he nails it to the cross and he removes it. It's gone. We are now not just not guilty. We are forgiven. We are righteous. We are his. We are not just cleared of our sin. We're reconciled to God. And then I have this picture in my mind of verse 15. Like when a verdict doesn't go the way that a courtroom group of, you know, whoever's gathered there just watching, just the, those observing the courtroom, it doesn't go the way they want it to go. And there's this verdict is given by the judge and everybody's just aghast and upset maybe because it didn't go the way they wanted to. And then the, 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 the freed party's walking down the aisle out of the courtroom and people are upset. Well, that's what's going on in verse 15. The demons of hell, the, these rulers and authorities that wanna, they have no authority, but they just wanna piggyback on the righteousness of God's law and accuse us. He put them to shame by triumphing over them. And so we're exonerated, we're made righteous, we're cleared of our guilt by Jesus in his court. God says he shall go free, he's mine, and we're walking out of the court and everything in this world is shouting at us, you're still guilty, you're still guilty. But God silences these rulers and authorities in the cross. And we walk out free, righteous, his, because of the death of Jesus on the cross. Just one little word, friends, before we move on to the third and final point. If, you're, if, you're, if your conscience is accusing you, if you're a believer in Jesus, and your conscience is accusing you of past sin, put it in the category of 15, verse 15. That, that cry against you has been disarmed. It's been nailed to the cross. You are innocent. You are righteous. You're in Christ. You must and you shall go free. Which leads us to the third truth. Is that Jesus is highly exalted and worthy of all our worship. The truth number one is that Jesus was born in the likeness of men. Truth number two is that Jesus was obedient to the point of death on the cross. And truth number three is that Jesus is highly exalted and worthy of all worship. Let's look at verses 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Look at the progression of just this, these few verses. Jesus was born Jesus was born to die. Jesus has risen again and is exalted and is at the right hand of the Father, praying for us, in charge of everything that goes on, sovereignly controlling all that is, and will come again to make all things right. Jesus is highly exalted and worthy of our worship. And now we, 
as responders to Jesus' death and resurrection, we are now called to worship him. We are now called to lift our eyes up afresh from this world and to worship God rightly. What does this look like practically in our lives? I think the end of the year is a good time for God's people to just take an inventory of their lives and to just think about whether or not we are exalting Jesus in all parts of our lives. Is he, is he receiving honor? Is every, is every knee in my life, is it, is it bowing to him? Is, is, are all the arrows of my life pointed in the direction of giving him honor? Are all the tongues in my life, are all the voices that come out of me, are all of my actions confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father? Now is a beautiful time, a wonderful time, to take inventory of our lives and to highly exalt Jesus and to give him all of our worship because he is worthy of all of our worship. Let's do that now as we pray and as we see this gospel that we believe be preached by the baptism of two in our church. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, thank you for the beautiful truth of the incarnation that you would become like us so that we might be reconciled to you. You've bound yourself to this. You've made it necessary. Jesus had to be made like us. He's a merciful and faithful high priest. And he had to die. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And now he is exalted and he's worthy of all worship. Lord, it's not enough for us just to give mental agreement to these facts. We must worship you. Good theology must lead to good doxology. The right understanding of God must lead us to the right worship of God. Lord, make that so in our lives. Lord, make us more worshipful. Make Christ more exalted in our hearts. Not that he can be more exalted above the heavens, but make it more practically true in our lives. And for my friends that are here this morning, Lord, that may not have yet believed this message of the gospel, Lord, would you do what only you can do and would you do a miracle? Would you give them Would you make them alive? They're dead in their trespasses. Would you give them a new heart so that they can believe this good news and put their trust in Jesus? Lord, I pray that you do this all for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.